The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This image that is sold uh, as opposed to any substance. And this same type of thinking has uh, influenced so many churches. And this was the same thing that was going on in the ancient world. And so they were more concerned with the form rather than the substance of what was being communicated. Now, in this verse... Uh, Paul raises the question, first, where's the philosopher, the intellectual? Where's the scribe? Where's the Jewish legalist? And then third, where is the debater of this age? And this last phrase, of this age, is a genitive of description related to the debater. And this modifies the concept of age, so we have to ask, what is age? Age, in this context, doesn't mean the present church age. This isn't a technical uh, temporal term for a dispensation, but it often is used in Scripture to refer to that extended period of time which God has allotted to the cosmic system in order to demonstrate in human history the complete failure of the cosmic system and the world system. Remember in first, or Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is termed the God of this age. It's the same term that's used there, the Greek word ionos. And so the emphasis there is on that time period that Satan has been given in the angelic conflict to uh, influence the human race and to try to demonstrate that he has the ability to function as God and to bring about peace and stability uh, in human history. Of course, he is a failure at that, and the reason is is because the ultimate foundation of all satanic thought is arrogance, and arrogance can never produce anything of substance and arrogance ultimately will always self-destruct. And that is the ultimate problem with all of human viewpoint thought systems, no matter how intricate they are, no matter how uh, well thought out they might be, no matter how impressive the system might be, whether you're talking about uh, ancient Greek philosophical systems, whether you're talking about many of the philosophical systems that were developed by the scholastic thinkers in the Middle Ages who were... Uh, seeking to harmonize biblical revelation with Aristotle or Plato, whether you're talking about the the uh, intricate modern systems developed by uh, people like Immanuel Kant or Hegel or Wittgenstein or any of the other host of modern philosophers, that ultimately their foundation is arrogance. Their foundation is the assumption that man, apart from God, can come to an understanding of, of ultimate realities that man on his own has the ability, has the thinking ability, has the uh, interpretive ability apart from anything else on his own to uh, evaluate through on the basis of either rationalism or empiricism uh, to evaluate creation and come to ultimate answers. Therefore, we have to continuously remind ourselves of the chart that we, we've developed on the basis of uh, dealing with the historical answers to how we know what we know what we call the basis of knowledge. There are three human viewpoint systems which we have identified as autonomous systems of perception, and the key word there is autonomous. See, man thinks that he can arrive at truth with unaided reason or unaided experience. He doesn't need God. He is 
able to come to truth on his own. And this is in contrast to the biblical viewpoint, which says that man can't know God. In fact, the problem with all of his systems is at the core they are rejecting God. That's what Romans 1, 18 and following is all about. And as long as human systems of thought reject God, and even when they do include God, they do it in a way that excludes God as the ultimate authority and the ultimate sovereign of the universe. So we've outlined these as the three systems. We've looked at them in terms of their starting point and their methodology. The first is rationalism, and that's the idea that man, on the basis of unaided reason alone, can arrive at truth. So his starting point is in eight ideas that, that his own intellectual ability is such that he can look inside his thinking and focus on first principles, and then from those first pr principles, on the basis of the independent use of logic and reason, he can come to a knowledge of God. Descartes did this and eventually ended up, the only way he could get out of himself to God was through an, a, a form of what was called the ontological argument for the existence of God, and in Descartes' formulation, it didn't work because he starts with what's inside his brain, and ultimately he can never get outside of his brain. How can you prove that there's something that exists outside of the human mind? And so the rationalism of Descartes failed, and it was replaced by empiricism. People like uh, Barclay, Locke, Hume, and others were called empiricists. And empiricism, the starting point, is on sense perception, that man, man is born with an empty slate in his brain, called the tabula rasa, and that on the basis of his uh, involvement with, with life, what he sees, what he feels, what he hears, what he smells, that he can start from these uh, sense perceptions and on the basis of correctly... Remember, the, the hidden assumption here is he has to correctly interpret that sense data. So on the basis of that sense data, he is able to arrive at ultimate truth. And again, his methodology is still the independent use of logic and reason. The thing that is never discussed in either one of these systems is that the hidden assumption is that is faith in human ability, that finite man is able to correctly interpret the data, whether it's ra uh, rational data or empirical data, to arrive at ultimate truth. He is able to make that move from the finite to the infinite uh, on his own. This has always failed in human history. It failed in the ancient world, and it failed again in the late 19th century, and you had the rise of skepticism. You had the rejection of the possibility of knowledge uh, as a result of Kant's developments at the uh, end of the uh, 18th century. And as a result of that, you have a shift toward mysticism. And mysticism in its more benign form is merely subjectivism, and in its more extreme forms, it's demonism. And so mysticism really runs a spectrum. In fact, many churches have bought into various forms of mysticism, and, uh, and this is sets them up for failure. And one of the best examples that I can think of of this is the song that we frequently sing, not around here, but in many churches uh, about around Easter time, around uh, to celebrate the resurrection, that's the song, He Lives. And in the stanza, in the chorus of that song, it states, You ask me how I know He lives. And the answer given in that song is, He lives within my heart. That is not how we know that Jesus lives, because that puts the ultimate standard of of truth subjectively. It's what goes on inside of me. You ask me how I know he lives, it's because the Bible tells me so. Because the Bible clearly uh, tells us what happened historically at that time. We have objective revelation 
And that is how we know that Jesus rose from the dead. If it weren't for the fact that we have clear revelation from Scripture, from eyewitness accounts at the time, uh, inspired by, given by inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, we would not know that the grave was empty. We don't know it simply because we've had some sort of experience. If that is your basis, as it is for so many Christians, and at this point I want to pick on the Southern Baptists, because I came out of, I had a lot of experience with Southern Baptists in seminary. I did my uh, pastoral internship at a Southern Baptist church. And it is so typical in Southern Baptist churches that this becomes the ultimate standard for how you know the truth. It's because it has this kind of internal conviction. Well, that's no different from the testimony that you will get from any Mormon. If you go over here to New York sometime, to Palmyra, New York, which was the birthplace of Joseph Smith, the founder of of uh, the Church of uh, Jesus Christ, what a blasphemy, uh, uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, otherwise and they ought to accurately be called the Mormons. What happened there was, was uh, I went through this oh, 10 or 15 years ago, and you go through the tour of the birthplace, they have a log cabin there, and then up on a hill they have a huge statue to the uh, angel who was probably a demon who revealed all of this to uh, Joseph Smith. And you have these um, people who are Mormon missionaries. All the guides there are Mormon missionaries, and under their legalistic system, you have to spend a certain amount of time as a missionary. And I had this little old man who is trying to convince me of the truth of Mormonism. And it turned out that this little old man that was uh, trying to witness to me uh, was a converted Southern Baptist. And what most people don't realize is the number one group from which Mormons get the majority of their converts are Southern Baptists. And the reason is is because Southern Baptists are basically have bought into a light mysticism. The reason they know the Word of God is true is not because it has object, external objectifiable uh, absolutes, but because it has this internal subjective confirmation. And so this little old guy says that finally I understood the truth. When the Mormon missionaries came to me and explained the Book of Mormon to me, I knew it was true because I had the burning in my bosom. See, that's the phrase they use for this internal subjective con uh, control. How do you know something is true? Because I felt it in here. See, he didn't change, have to change his, his thinking at all from, being, from, from converting from a Southern Baptist to converting to a Mormon. And the reason is he still held the same ultimate view of how you know truth, and that's because it's some kind of subjective uh, internal feeling. He had, the problem with this guy was that he had never understood the Scriptures, and he had never changed his thinking according to Romans 12, too. He, had never, he was still conformed to the world. He still thought, uh, in a, according to a non-biblical, human viewpoint, pagan system uh, of thinking. And so his uh, truth was based on this inner private experience. And so you have all kinds of religious systems that are ultimately based on mysticism. And within every religious system, whether it's Islam or Mormonism or evangelical Christianity, there are always, there's always a subgroup of mystics. In, um, in Islam you have them, the whirling dervishes, and they also speak in tongues. There's uh, Hindus and, Morm and uh, uh, Buddhist sects that also speak in tongues and have a much great, even though they're fundamentally mystical religions, there are more extreme forms of mysticism within them. The uh, same thing is true about Mormons. In fact, the first group of people to claim to speak in glossolalia, that is a form of tongues, it's not the biblical gift, but the first group in modern history to claim to speak in, in, in tongues were Mormons. And this, always, this type of thing always goes hand in hand with mysticism. 
Now, the reason it's difficult to, to uh, talk to the mystic is because the mystic rejects uh, logic and reason. And so you can't use logic and reason to talk to them because they've rejected that. They have felt like rationalism and empiricism were grounded in logic and reason. And so we're going to reject logic and reason, both, both the starting point and the methodology. And their starting point is, very, notice it's very similar to rationalism. That's why ultimately 19th century religious liberalism that was founded on the rationalism of the 18th century broke down into mysticism by the late 19th century is because the inner starting point is the same. It's what's going on inside my head. But in mysticism, you reject logic and reason. And so the emphasis is on, on feeling, it's on intuition, it's on uh, just this intuitive flashes or insights as to what truth is. And that ultimately breaks, breaks down, and in human history that uh, always results in all sorts of uh, fragmentation. Well, this was a problem in Corinth as it is today. In contrast to this, we have divine revelation, which is based on the fact that there is objective revelation of God, that God is a God of intelligence. God is omniscience. God has knowledge, and God can communicate to his creatures and has communicated to his creatures, and as such, he intends to communicate in such a way that he is understandable and knowable. God is not communicating in such a way that we have to guess and guess in such a manner that everybody's guesses are really okay so that all roads end up leading to God. And you'll hear that from many people today, especially in the light of this conflict with uh, Islamic radical terrorists, that everybody ends up on the same path toward God. And if you take that out and evaluate it a little bit, you realize uh, how absurd that is because the claims that are made by each of these religious systems are radically, a contra they, they contradict each other in a radical manner. In fact, Biblical Christianity is based on the claim that Jesus is the only way, and if Jesus is the only way, then you can't try to compromise that or, or uh, assimilate that to any other religious system. So divine viewpoint is based on the fact that God has revealed himself to us and given us information that we can understand, that God created us in his image so that we think we have logic and we have reason, but we're not going to use it independently of him. Our starting point is going to be God and his revelation. Our starting point is not going to be our own thinking. So this is the ultimate conflict that's going on in Corinth, and it comes down to epistemology. That's the fancy word for how you know what you know. That's what it's called in philosophy. Philosophy has several, several subdivisions. Metaphysics has to do with ultimate realities. Epistemology has to do with how we know what we know. Ethics has to do with the value system that... that uh, that grows out of it. And basically, the battlefield is always, always over epistemology, how you know what you know. And if you don't argue at that basis with somebody, and I don't mean in terms of an argument, but if you're not presenting the gospel in such a way that we're challenging those basic assumptions of how you know truth, then uh, the, the discussion is often fruitless, and people just end up backing into opposite corners and... Um, and throw, throwing their arguments at each other and nobody listening. You have to start with the foundation. So <clears throat> Paul raises the question in verse 18, or, or excuse me, in verse 20. These three questions he is going to address in the remainder of this chapter and through chapter 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the legalist? Where is the debater of this age? And then he asks the question, hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world. 
And the point of that last question is to expect an affirmative answer, and that is, yes, God has made the wisdom that comes from the source of the cosmic system foolishness. Well, let's take a minute to exegete the passage and look at how it breaks down because it is uh, informative. The subject of the question is God. God is the subject of the verb. It is a, a in, in this section, it is a noun that has an article with it. God, the word God does not need to have an article with it to be a definite noun or to refer to God. It just the Greek article works very different from the English article, and that's the in English the definite article is the word the. You do not have to translate the word the or put the insert the word the in an English translation though in order for a word to be definite. God is one of those nouns that is inherently definite. It's just like if you listen to a Brit sometime and they ask you what you did after after uh, high school, they'll say, where did you go to university or where did uh, you do university studies? Or if you're ill, they'll say, uh, did you go to hospital? Notice they leave out. We would say, did you go to the hospital or where did you go to the university? And uh, But in British idiom, university and hospital are inherently definite nouns, so they drop out the definite article. They don't use the word the with it. God is the same way in Greek. It doesn't need to have the article with it in order to be definite. But when we find the article present in the Greek, it's there for a reason, and it's there to emphasize something. And in this sense, it's called a monadic article, which means it is, the, it is emphasizing the one and only God, the unique God. So Paul says, has not the God, that is the unique God of the universe, made foolish. And here we have the Greek word uh, morino, which is in the aorist active indicative, which is simply focusing on a simple past action, that God in the past has done this. But it makes God the subject of the verb that God has actively made foolish the wisdom of the world. God is the subject, and the verb is in the active voice, meaning that God has actively done something in order to render all human thought systems foolish. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And there we have that same word for wisdom, sophos, the wisdom that has its source in cosmic thinking. Now, God has rendered it foolish because all human viewpoint systems, because they reject the knowledge of God, they depart from reality at some point. They are, in some sense, based on a, on a system of thinking that, that has distorted reality according to its own presuppositions. That's why, at some point, all human viewpoint thinkers are, at some point, neurotic and subjective, and they can't handle reality. That's why uh, one of the greatest, uh, uh, one, one individual who uh, <coughs> was one of the greatest uh, users of drugs, especially marijuana, was Carl Sagan, who was famous for his series on the cosmos. He, was, he rejected any form of Christianity, any concept that there was a God, but when it came to ultimately handling the issues of life, Sagan couldn't do it on his own. He had to rely at some level on drugs in order to face the horrors of life. See, only Christians have the ability to look at the horrors of life and the suffering of life, and we understand why they are there, and that there will be an ultimate resolution of evil. But the unbeliever who has rejected the Word of God and rejected the absolutes from the Word of God has no ultimate answer, and so they can't live with their, the, the, ultimate, uh, the ultimate implications 
of their own thought, and that is that there is no meaning in life. There's all this pain, all this suffering, all this misery, and there's no ultimate meaning. There's no one in control that after we die, it's just nothingness, and so everything is just lived out in a vacuum. Uh, modern man cannot live that way, so ultimately everybody who operates on human viewpoint is going to be uh, neurotic, if not psychotic. Now, in Corinth, we have Christians who aren't applying this doctrine at all, but they're thinking like unbelievers and operating on, a, on the value system of unbelievers, and they're doing the same thing that unbelievers do today and many Christians do today, and that is that they're pay, placing the ultimate value on these things, on, on wisdom, on legalistic obedience, or on uh, outward form of the debate, the entertainment that came from the debate. In the same way, they place the ultimate value on social status, on education, on intellectual abilities, on achievement, that is what, for the unbeliever, that is the only thing that can bring real and true significance to life. In contrast to that, Paul is making a claim that he has universal revelation, universal revelation, a universal truth that applies to all cultures at all times everywhere. Not even Plato or Aristotle make such radical claims for their own thought systems. But Paul does, and Paul's system and Paul's thinking is so radically different that his emphasis is on uh, the everyday people. As we're going to see here, by the time we get to the end of the end of the chapter, he says, not only do I have a, a system that's universal, but, but it relates and elevates the common person. You know, look, look at the trophies of God's system, the trophies of God's system, the everyday person. It's Lydia who's the seller of purple. It's the, the, the fishmonger who sells down in the market. It's the guy who, who mucks out the stables. These are the wise people. Why? Because they are operating on humility. You see, all the human viewpoint systems that we have studied start with arrogance. See, that's faith in human ability. That's arrogance. But under a divine viewpoint, the starting point is God. It is, there has to be a level of humility and a rejection of human ability at the starting point. And that is why Paul is able to say that the real trophies of divine viewpoint are the people that the world has rejected because these people understand what humility is and what grace is, and so they respond positively to the revelation of God. Now, Paul goes on to explain the, the, the answers to his three questions, starting in verse 21, where he focuses on the philosophical issue. Verse 21 begins in uh, the New American Standard with the statement, For sense in the wisdom of God, let's get it up on the screen, For sense in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And again we see, and we will see through the rest of this chapter, this juxtaposition between wisdom and and foolishness. And it begins in the New American Standard for sense. I've got uh, the version I used to get the text in the um, for the uh, overhead it says for after that. Actually, it should be translated for because. It is a causal construction. It begins with the Greek uh, particle gar, meaning this is a, an explanation, and then it uses the Greek word epede, which is a compound conjunction for ex cause to, to explain the cause of something. So it should be translated for because. He's going to explain why God's wisdom has rendered man's wisdom foolishness. So it's because in the wisdom of God, because in the wisdom of God, this is a 
locative dative, which indicates it's in the sphere of divine thought. See, the result of human thought systems is clearly described in Romans 1, 18 to 32. Hold your place here, and let's turn to Romans 1 for just a refresher course of God's analysis of what happens eventually in the breakdown of human viewpoint thinking. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God, that is the disciplinary action of God in time, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So man is characterized as suppressing the truth in unrighteousness because the majority of human beings are going to be negative at God consciousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So there's the clear statement in Scripture that no one... No one can claim that they don't know God. Now, people do claim that, and they may actually have convinced themselves that they never have believed in God, but the testimony of Scripture is just the opposite. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. That is, that the creation out there clearly gives testimony to the fact that there is a Creator, a Creator who has order, purpose, and design, a creator who has the intellectual capability to handle all of the complexity of DNA, of amino acids, of uh, subatomic particles, and to put everything together, that none of this can operate just on the basis of chance alone. Uh, a good book that came out of uh, five or six years ago that was sort of at the cutting edge of this whole development of the um, uh, design, what's called, now called the design argument for creation is a, was a book called Darwin's Black Box by a... Uh, professor at Lehigh University by the name of Michael Behe. And in that book, he's not arguing, there's no mention of the Scripture, there's no mention of the Bible, but in that book he goes through and he shows that if Darwin had known what we know about cellular biology, he never would have come up with his theory because he would know that it is uh, mathematically I impossible, that there is so much detail at the, at the uh, uh, microscopic level inside the cell that it's impossible that all of these chains, all of these, all this information that's in there could have come together on the basis of something that was purely random. And that started a, uh, a movement among what I might call, some are secular scientists, some are, uh, have a religious orientation, they're not necessarily evangelical believers, they're not to be uh, confused with those in the creation science movement, like Institute for Creation uh, Research or some of the other groups. But, they, but this started a whole movement among uh, scientists that have been extremely critical of uh, any kind of Darwinian uh, evolution. And that, is, and that is just another manifestation of verse 20, and that is that there is clear evidence. God says that everything that we look at, everything that we see, everything about our being screams to every human being that God exists. And each human being, because he's created in the image and likeness of God, has the receptors necessary to hear that information. And at that point, when they come to a realization that there is a God, they have a choice. And the choice is either to accept or to reject the existence of God. If you are negative to the existence of God, then at that point, you begin to suppress it in unrighteousness so that by the time you're another five or ten years goes by, you've completely uh, forgotten the fact that you ever had this realization that there was a God, and that is completely covered up. And uh, <clears throat> then those who go positive at God consciousness, God in his justice and righteousness, because God is fair, 
is at some point, in some way, going to get a clear gospel presentation to that individual. Now they have a second opportunity to use their volition and to either trust in Christ or not trust in Christ. They may get multiple opportunities. They may get one opportunity. All they need is one, and they have that opportunity. Verse 21 goes on to say, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So there's a progress here where you reject God, you cover it over with a, with a negative volition, which, notice, it's a suppression in unrighteousness, so that suppression has a moral element to it. It's not just a, it's not just a, a knowledge issue, it is an ethical issue, and it's being suppressed in unrighteousness. And that unrighteousness has cumulative effects. Now, verse 22 gives us the answer, professing to be wise, doesn't matter how many PhDs they have. It doesn't matter how much study they've had. It doesn't matter how much time they've had in the laboratory, how many books they're written, how articulate they are, how great their vocabulary is. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Why? The psalmist said that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If you've got a, the wrong starting point for your system of knowledge, no matter how intricate it is, no matter how well-developed it is, it's wrong. You've built it on an inadequate foundation, and that is, according to Scripture, foolish. It's stupid, because you've got a completely false system that now you have uh, sold yourself to. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. And this is exactly what happens, is that, that uh, all human viewpoint systems ultimately worship man. This is what happens in uh, rationalism. The faith is in human ability. You're really worshiping human reason. In empiricism, it's a worship of the scientific methodology. That's the ultimate reality in the universe is human empiricism. In mysticism, it is a glorification of man's um, su subjectivity. All of this is nothing more than idolatry in various forms. The result of this are various stages of divine judgment. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurities. Uh, they, verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. We have homosexuality or sodomy and lesbianism. Verse 28, and just as uh, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Various stages of divine judgment that result in the internal collapse of any culture and any society. Let's go back to verse 21. This is the dynamic of how God makes foolish the wisdom of man. It never works. Man is never able to solve the ultimate problems that face man. doesn't matter how much uh, the government does. doesn't matter how, how many programs they develop. It doesn't matter how much legislation there is. It doesn't matter what happens in the uh, classroom, how much money uh, you give to various programs. They do not come up with the answers, and everything eventually collapses and falls apart. Man cannot solve his problems on his own, uh, whether it's communism, socialism, whether it's false religions such as Islam, Buddhism, or Hinduism, whatever it may be, all human systems of thought eventually enslave man. Why? The scriptures make it clear because man is in, in those conditions, man is enslaved to his sin nature and he must be freed and delivered from that sin nature, or there can be no real freedom. Why do you think it is that no other nation in the world ever experienced the level of freedoms 
that were experienced in the United States. If it's because of the the historical base in Judeo-Christian theology that informed the intellectual thinking of our founding fathers. Same thing is true. We look over in the Middle East. Why do you think it is that the only country in the Middle East that has democracy is Jews? Because they have that same intellectual heritage. Now, in Israel, there's a lot of socialism. That's because they've rejected a lot of it. But ultimately, uh, it's only on the basis of that Judeo-Christian heritage, the value system that comes from the Word of God, that can provide any level of freedom. You get out any kind of world map and look at all of the nations in the world, and you can see that only those nations, uh, th- that if you, can, you can see that the nations that have had the greatest level of freedom, Great Britain, the British Empire, Scotland, uh, the United States, th- those are the nations that also had the greatest impact from evangelical Christianity. You look at the next tier, you look at countries such as France and Holland and Germany, and they too had a level of impact from the Protestant Reformation, but not to the degree that the English-speaking peoples did. And then you go into the other parts of Europe that never were impacted by the Protestant Reformation, Spain, Italy, Greece, uh, Austria, Poland, where they stayed under the ensla- stayed enslaved to the mysticism and the legalism of the Roman Catholic Church, and they had a, 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 some level of freedom, but not the kind of freedom that was experienced in those countries impacted by the Protestant Reformation. Then you look at the rest of the world, from the Islamic countries to the countries in Asia, and you discover that they never developed a concept of freedom in those countries. It is completely foreign to their culture. And as we studied before, the core issue in culture is always religious beliefs. And so it's only on the basis of biblical Christianity that you develop a a system of thought that gives value and significance to the individual and to volition and personal responsibility. And that goes hand in hand with understanding freedom. You can't have freedom without personal responsibility, and you can't emphasize personal responsibility without giving people freedom. And you don't have either one of those concepts present in uh, any of the religions such as Islam, Buddhism, or Hinduism, or primitive religions, animism, spiritism, or anything like that that dominated the uh, African continent. So man, our God has made foolish the wisdom of man, because in the wisdom of God, that is God's omniscience, because God knows all the knowable, God's knowledge is complete, it never increases, it never decreases, God's knowledge is completely different from our knowledge. God's knowledge is intuitive. In one instant, throughout all of eternity, God has always known all the actual and all the possible. And in his wisdom, which is absolute, God demonstrates the or invalidates, nullifies the wisdom of man. Verse 21 states, For because in the wisdom of God, the world, that is the cosmic system through its wisdom, did not come to know God. It rejected God, according to Romans 1, 18 and following. God was well pleased. Now, this is a bad translation here. The main verb in the Greek is eudokeo. Eudokeo looks like this. E-U-D-O-K-E-O. Now, the important thing here that we have to note is, is that it is an uh, aorist active indicative. Now, the aorist tense is cu- uh, culminative, which means it looks at the past and summarizes it all up in one in one view, looking at it as complete. 
It is an active verb. Now, this is where I want to, what I want to emphasize here. The active verb means that the subject performs the action of the verb. The subject of the verb is God. And yet, when it is translated into English, it says God was well pleased. That's a passive construction. But it's an active verb. So we lose the significance when it's brought over like that into English. Other translations suggest it pleased God. In fact, this is an idiom for God's choice. God made a decision. God chose in eternity past to uh, construct reality a certain way. We might translate it, God took pleasure or God thought it best, but it emphasizes the decisions that God made in eternity past in relationship to the divine decrees. God is going to demonstrate something in human history and this has its part in the angelic conflict. God is going to demonstrate that the cosmic thought, all human viewpoint thinking is part of cosmic thinking, is invalid and is foolish. And God is going to demonstrate that through the foolishness of the message. Now, Paul is using foolishness here in the way that, that his critics are using it. They're calling the gospel foolish. So according to the standard of the world, the message is foolish, but not according to the standard of God. God thought it best through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, the message preached here is the noun kerugma, which is used nine times in the New Testament, and every time the content of the message is the gospel. Kerugma always refers to the proclamation of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sin. Kerugma does not refer to the exposition or explanation of doctrine. It refers primarily to the communication of the gospel. The problem, as I've noted the last several times, this is really a critique of what happens under the guise of modern preachings. Most modern preaching today is built on Aristotelian concepts of rhetoric and is basically a wrong approach according to everything we're going to learn here in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2. In modern English, we summarize everything that's done from the pulpit as preaching. And yet the word, the verb kerusa and the noun kerugma, which refers to preaching or the message proclaimed, always relates in the New Testament to gospel information. It is not related to the concept of didasco, which is teaching, which is the concept of verse-by-verse exposition of the scriptures in order to teach people how to think. See, preaching is oriented to exhortation. It is application. It is a certain form as it's been developed in, in modern homiletics. And as is usually taught in the superficial, uh, uh, class, in the superficial homiletic classrooms of today is that you're to, to construct your sermon in such a way that it's memorable. That, uh, as I was taught, you should be able to construct it and develop your basic points so that on Monday morning, uh, people can remember the basic uh, structure of what you said the day before. That people can uh, remember you. So, so there, therefore, you don't want to give them too many points. You know, if you give somebody 15 points, they're not going to remember it. You got to give them three or four points, and they have to, you know, build them on alliteration or rhyme or something so that it's memorable. Well, people may remember it on Monday, but they'll forget half of it by Tuesday and all of it by Wednesday. See, the difference between my philosophy of teaching and the philosophy that you get in most churches is that I don't want you to remember it on Monday. I want to teach it over and over again until you're just sick of it, but you'll never forget it. 
I'm going to put that chart on the basis of knowledge up there on the overhead so many times that you can think about it in your sleep. But you'll know it, and you won't be able to forget it. It's just like anybody who's trying to do anything of substance in life, whether it has to do with athletics, whether it has to do with art, whether it has to do with music. You, if you're going to master an instrument, you're going to practice and practice and practice and practice until if you're playing a stringed instrument, your fingers are going to bleed. If you're playing the piano, you're just going to hear it all night long in your sleep. If you're playing a, a wind instrument, your lips are going to buzz all night long from the vibration because you practiced all day. But you're going to do it over and over and over and over again. And anybody who has uh, has ever made their mark musically is somebody who's practiced 12, 14 hours a day without stopping. And that's that repetition that inculcates that into their soul so that wherever they are, whenever whenever they uh, have to perform, they do so because this that music is embedded in their muscle memory. And that is the point of good teaching is to repeat something and teach it over and over again so you can't forget. And there's a world of difference between teaching something so you can remember it and teaching something so you can't forget it. And that's the difference in the kind of teaching we believe in here at Preston City Bible Church. Now, Paul goes on to say that God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And this emphasizes that the issue in salvation is not what we do, but what we believe, that we are to believe, that is, to accept as true, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day. And Paul goes on to say, for indeed, in verse 22, Jews ask for a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. See, the point here is that the Jews are looking for empirical data, and Greeks are looking for rational answers. And once again, it comes down to epistemology. The Jews require a sign, and in Matthew chapter 12, they required a sign, and Jesus said the sign would be the resurrection. They had the sign. They still rejected it. See, when you're operating on empiricism as your ultimate standard, you'll never get an answer that will be satisfactory because your ultimate, your ultimate epistemological framework will nullify the answer when you see it. That's what happened to the Jews. Greeks search for wisdom. Now, the wisdom that the, Jew, that the Greeks were looking for was a wisdom that had to do with practical value, something that would bring success, something that would bring uh, aesthetic value. They were seeking esteem. They were emphasizing in their culture honor and success. They wanted information, wisdom that would uh, contribute to their everyday love affairs, business relationships, and friendships so that they could have success in life. That's what the Greeks were looking for. So they're looking to do two different things. And Paul says, but the difference in Christianity is that our starting point is different. Our starting point is the God of the universe, is a holy, righteous God, and he solved that, had to solve that problem before he could have a relationship with man. So our message is contained in verse 23, but we preach, that is, we proclaim. Here we have the verb keruso again, and what is the object of preaching? Christ crucified. It's not teaching the... Um, uh, five different sections or five different types of prayer. It's not going through and analyzing the Psalms. It's not explana- explicating the uh, various dispensations and what, uh, what is uh, characteristic of each dispensation. That's teaching. This is proclamation that Christ crucified. And to Jews, this is a stumbling block. They're looking for a sign and they will stumble over it because it doesn't fit their preconceived empirical uh, criteria. 
And the Gentiles, it will be foolish because the Greeks are looking for wisdom that is going to make them successful, that is going to bring honor and esteem to them. And what honor and esteem by looking at some guy in, in Judea who was crucified by the worst form of punishment as a common criminal. How is that going to bring me honor and esteem and value in my culture? So to people who are seeking glory, honor, personal success, wealth, and who have the value system of modern man, a crucified Messiah is an insult. And because it is a very, it's a reversal of the, of life's details, Christianity is a, is foolishness to the Gentiles. It says all of those things that you value, all the details of life are mere foolishness and they are subverted by the message of Christ crucified. In contrast, Paul says, but to those who are the called, that is, believers who respond in positive volition to the gospel uh, call, the gospel message, both Jews and Greeks. See, there's not a distinction there. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, it doesn't matter. You can come to the cross. There's equal access. There was not equal access in the Old Testament, but there is in the church age. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Jesus Christ summarizes both the power of God and the wisdom of God, and then in conclusion, Paul says in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And he uses a comparison there in order to demonstrate that, that just by use of hyperbole, that God on his worst day is so much smarter and so much superior to man on his very best day that how in the world can man arrogantly assume that somehow he can figure God out? That is the essence of that argument. I'll come back and we'll review verse 24 and 25 again next time before we wrap up the chapter with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word again, to study these things, and to realize how important it is, it is to think about how we think. That the purpose for being here is not simply to be entertained, not simply to learn things, but to have our thinking revolutionized, to have it radically reshaped according to the standards of your word. Father, we thank you that you have your word and that it clearly tells us what our problem is, that it is sin, and that, that you solved the sin problem at the cross when Jesus Christ died as our substitute. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit right now is to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, to Believe that he died on the cross as a substitute for you, that he paid the penalty for your sins, and that on the basis of his death and his death alone, you have eternal life and access to God and have a relationship with him. Father, we thank you for again for your word. Pray that you would help us to uh, understand the things that we've studied today as we meditate on them, that uh, you might use them in our own lives for application for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.